I invite you then to turn with me to your Bibles to the book of Ephesians in chapter 6 as we continue our series in Paul's letter to Ephesians as is our custom at College Church. We're working our way through a succession of passages from the Bible and we've come to chapter 6. As we uh, now turn our attention to God's Word, let's bow our heads in prayer together. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you for your Word and we pray that as... uh, as you promised, that the, the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God as you teach us. And we, so we pray that your Spirit would be powerfully at work through your Word this morning. And particularly as we come to this passage that is uh, once again about some of the sensitive areas of life, parents and children, and even an area of uh, often controversy within the history of the church about slavery. We pray, Lord, that you give us clarity of minds And also openness of hearts that by your spirit, your word would heal wounds, uh, bind up the brokenhearted. And we pray, Lord, that uh, my words would be pleasing to you, everything I say. And Lord, that the thinking of all our hearts would also be pleasing to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So friends, Ephesians chapter 6. And uh, beginning at uh, verse 1, and I will read until uh, verse, uh, verse 9. Let's hear God's word. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, This he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And that there is no partiality with him. There was only ever one real Christian, and he died on a cross. I wonder whether you recognize that quotation or could tell me who first wrote it or said it. It was Frederick Nietzsche. It may not be normal to begin a sermon uh, in, in a Christian church by that infamous atheist, Frederick Nietzsche. 
But when he wrote, it was in his book, The Anti-Christian, there, is, there was only ever one real Christian in truth, and that was the one who died on a cross. He illustrates the problem that we're facing this morning as we come to this passage, that we're going to have to puzzle through together. And that is the uh, disjunction between the theory of what Christianity claims to teach and the reality of what Christians practice. It's one thing to say that family life, if you're a Christian, should be beautiful and, and glorious and all the rest, but I've been a pastor long enough to be invited into the difficulties and challenges of family life to know that that isn't always true. And when we come to this second part of the passage about slavery and bond servants and masters and, 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 and all of that, obviously that's been an area of huge controversy within the history of the church. Uh, Christians have often been accused, the Bible has been accused, of taking far too mild a line about slavery, the evil of slavery. And yet here you have the Apostle Paul telling Slaves to obey their earthly masters. What on earth is that about? Is it just out-of-date morality? And and if it is out-of-date morality, what's to say that this bit is out-of-date and other bits are not? Oh, yeah, Nietzsche's point, where there was only ever one real Christian and he died on a cross, illustrates a problem that we need to puzzle with. How do we put into practice the love and grace and kindness and beauty and, and all that of the person of Jesus in our family lives and in the social dynamics that surround this issue of even slavery. We need to puzzle through that together. And not think that simplistic answers are sufficient. How how are we going to do it? Well, I'm going to give you first the principle that runs throughout the passage. There's a principle that runs all the way through the passage that Paul is then, second, then the application that he's then applying throughout the principle. There's one principle that he applies in four different areas. So here's the principle. The principle is around the word Lord, L-O-R-D. I'm sure you noticed it. I hope you did as I read it out. Let me show you again. Verse 1, children obey your parents in the Lord, which, by the way, immediately means that children are not called upon to obey their parents in ways that would not reflect the personality and teaching of Jesus. Obey your parents in the Lord. Uh, The principle is also in verse 4. Verse 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. But then again, the second half of the passage, the same principle has been worked out. It's a little hidden in the translations. Uh, verse 5, bondservants, obey your earthly masters or obey your earthly lords. 
And then verse 9, masters or lords do the same to them, which is a hugely important little phrase there that I'll, I'll show us in a moment. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master or their Lord and yours is in heaven. You remember the heavenly places being the key message of, 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 of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And here again, he's alluding to it. The Lord is in heaven. He is heavenly power. The Lord. That's the principle. And the Apostle Paul has been building up to this moment throughout his letter to land that principle in some of the most difficult areas of human life, the home. We looked at the marriage last week, now parents and children, and even this area of ancient slavery. What the Apostle Paul is saying is that the principle of Jesus' lordship must be shaping for our daily lives, for our home lives, yeah, for our working lives. Not merely a bumper sticker, Jesus is Lord, but it needs to shape actually our daily lives. He's been building up to this throughout the letter. I, I won't uh, bring out to you every time that he, 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 he makes this point about the principle of Jesus' lordship. But I'll, I'll, I'll illustrate a few so that you can buy into my argument here. But chapter 1, verse 2, he begins by saying this, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we're used to the Apostle Paul talking about the Lord, so is he just beginning his letter in a fairly standard way. Well, no, look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's emphasizing the lordship of Jesus. Or again, verse 15. For this reason, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. Again, he's, he's making this point to this principle, the, the lordship of, of Jesus. Or verse 16. I do not cease to, cease to give thanks to you. Remember our prayers. Verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when you begin to realize that that word Lord in that culture was predominantly used of the worship of Caesar as Lord. You start to realize the Apostle Paul is challenging the whole principle of authority. Jesus' lordship must shape our daily lives. Not uh, uh, Christians in Ephesus. Caesar's lordship. But Jesus' lordship. It must shape our life in the church. Uh, chapter 2, verse 21. In whom the whole structure, he's talking about the church, being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Not Caesar's temple. Jesus' temple. The lordship of Jesus must shape our daily lives, our church lives too. Whose church is this? It's not my church. I hope you don't think that. It's not even our church. It's Jesus' church. And that isn't just a trite truism. The whole of our relational dynamics must be shaped by that principle of his lordship. It's not Caesar's church. It's God's church, Jesus' church. 
We see uh, again he brings us out in, in chapter 3. Uh, verse 11 about the, about the gospel. What, what is, what is the, the ruling authority of the gospel? Who gets to determine the message? Chapter 3 verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, his lordship. And then when he comes to apply all this principle of teaching, which he does in chapter 4 and on, and as we come now to the household, as he's applying it to the home and, as I say, to this complicated area of slavery that we'll look at in a moment, he, he indicates that the whole thing is going to be working out this principle of Jesus' lordship. Chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore, given all this spiritual truth about God's heavenly power, chapter 4, verse 1, therefore a prisoner for the Lord... Oh, don't think that Caesar is the one who has put me in jail. In the end, it's Jesus. I'm his prisoner. He is sovereign, even over my incarceration. And so now he comes to this part about family. And of course, the same. We didn't bring it out so much last week about wives and husbands. You can't say everything in every sermon, but... Wives and husbands, chapter 5, verse 22, the same sort of principles there. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, the Lordship of Jesus, his character, his love, his self-sacrifice, his grace. And now when it comes to this household that we're looking at today, again, that's the principle. And what it is... What this means is, we are free. So counterintuitive, but important to understand. Our freedom as individuals and as a church is guaranteed by Jesus' lordship. Uh, George Orwell, in his um, famous book, Animal Farm describes the paradoxical results of trying to live in a society where there is no authority. In his parable of this animal kingdom where they are all equal, he, he begins the story with a series of commandments that will govern their equality. And the first commandment is all the animals are equal. And the story unfolds and gradually it begins to unravel. And by the end of the story, with a moment of great irony and brilliant storytelling, George Orwell goes back to the original principle that in theory had guarded and guided that animal kingdom of total equality which had been all the animals are equal but now they've changed that law. It now says all the animals are equal but some of the animals are more equal than others. If you want to guard against dictatorship, preach Jesus' lordship. No dictator wants to hear the message that Caesar is not Lord, Jesus is Lord. That's the principle, his lordship. Well, then, how does that apply? 
And now he applies it in four different areas that we'll go through somewhat briefly. Because once you get the principle, it transforms how you live. First of all, children, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and you may live long in the land. Obviously, the Apostle Paul is saying that children are to obey their parents. In the Lord, as I said a little earlier, that means that there's a guardrail against abusive kind of parenting. The Apostle Paul is assuming good parenting, Christian parenting. What he is teaching here as he appeals back to the Old Testament commandment and applies it now to Christian parents and Christian children is that the number one most important thing that a child needs to learn as they're developing in the home is obedience. The number one predictor of a child's effectiveness in the future in their life is learning to obey godly Christian parents. Isn't dealing here with hard cases and and all and all of that, but assuming a normal, godly Christian home, a child's best interests are to obey. Uh, Rochelle and I used to have a little song that would play in the, in the car when we were driving our children when they were younger that had a tune to this. I can't read this text without ever always hearing that tune. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. But this is right. That doesn't mean the parents are always... Uh, get everything absolutely spot on and understand everything. But it means that you are obeying the one people on the face of the planet who, assuming that they are godly Christian parents, have your best interests at heart. That it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, uh, he then makes an application to them. Don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. What's fascinating here is that the Apostle Paul does not specifically mention mothers. He clearly includes mothers because he's talked about parents in the plural. But now when he comes to make an application of this principle of Jesus' lordship that needs to shape our daily lives, he specifically applies it to fathers. Why? I think because fathers are liable not to do what he's asking them to do. Some fathers have a tendency to be overly active too ambitious for their children. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. That is, don't have such lofty ambitions for your children that they are exasperated. The sort of father who inside wants their children to always get A's and always be top of the class and to win every football game, sorry, soccer game or whatever, baseball, whatever, you know, pitch perfectly, whatever it is. And whether the father actually says that or not to the child, the child inside realizes that if they don't live up to those expectations, then they're not doing what dad really wants. 
and it can lead to an internalization of anger. Don't provoke your children to anger. Don't have unrealistic expectations that lead to exasperation. But on the other hand, don't be passive either. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the law. The word discipline is related to the educational uh, world, the, the pedagogy. A father's task, however you structure your family life and, and in terms of schooling and homeschooling and, 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 and Christian schooling and, and uh, public schooling, however, whatever tools of delegation you use, as a father, your responsibility is to make sure that they are pedagogically, uh, that's the discipline word, it's not like uh, being harsh or something, it's saying you've got to, got to make sure that education and in particular, their instruction was related to the mind. What the Apostle Paul is saying is your task as a father is to make sure as, far, as much as you can that the way they think is around the truth and that their education leads to them following Jesus in the Lord. As you go along the way, as the Old Testament says, when there's an opportunity, when some point of conversation comes up, shape them, teach them, encourage them. Discipline, that is pedagogy, educate them, instruct them, shape their minds in, in the Lord. I, I've tried this line out at the 8 o'clock service, and I said that if after the 8 o'clock service everyone looked at me harshly, having used this line, I wouldn't use it at the 9.30 service, and no one did, so I tried at the 9.30 service, and so now I use it at the 11 o'clock service, and if you look at me all harshly, I won't use it, well, I'm not preaching this passage again, so it'll be fine, but um, the line is this, fathers, if you procreate, you need to educate goes with the responsibility. And then we come to this matter of bond servants and masters. So let me contextualize it for us so that we can understand what the Apostle Paul is saying as he applies this principle of Jesus' Jesus lordship. First of all, it's important to know that elsewhere Paul tells slaves to get their freedom if they can. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 21. So the Apostle Paul specifically teaches that if a slave can be, get their freedom, they should. Uh, second, in Paul's letter to Philemon, he tells Philemon to treat the former runaway slave, Onesimus, as he would treat a brother, not, no longer as a slave. What is more, he tells him to treat him as an apostle. The way you would treat me, says the Apostle Paul, treat the slave. No longer as a slave. Wherever Christianity has prevailed, slavery in the end has ceased. Christianity stopped slavery in the ancient world. It's a matter of historical record. When Christianity thrived in the British Empire, when it did, they, 
it, Christianity stopped slavery, William Wilberforce and that whole movement. And slavery was belatedly and tragically eventually stopped in America. Of course, there's still slavery today. And Christians are still at the forefront of, ceasing, of seeking to cease to stop slavery. Uh, some historical context helps us to understand how that's possible from this passage. Uh, to begin, the, the ancient slavery had no racial element to it. Uh, many different races were enslaved. Also, I think it's helpful to realize that one quarter of the population of Rome, that's the usual estimate, one quarter of the population of Rome were slaves. Think of that. One in four people you would have met in Rome, and probably the same was true in Ephesus, given it was influenced by Rome as part of the Roman Empire. One in four people you met would have been a slave. Uh, Slaves, then, actually included the professional class. Teachers were quite often slaves. So were medical doctors in the ancient world. They could be slaves. If you were not a master, Paul here talks about masters, if you were not a master, that is part of the patrician class of uh, ancient uh, Roman Empire, I think, but were what was uh, known as plebeians or commoners, which would be, I think, probably all of us, it could actually be quite hard to find work. You think of it, if one quarter of the population are slaves, it was quite difficult to find a job because it was done by slaves. And actually, therefore, commoners would sometimes enslave themselves so that they could get work. That said, there is plentiful of evidence, and I won't, I won't um, quote it for you because it's too gross for a Sunday morning, but there's plenty of evidence of evil abuse from non-Christian masters to slaves in the ancient world. I think it's also helpful to know that indentured servitude in early modern Europe, medieval early modern Europe, was reasonably common. So, for instance, if you wanted to find your way to get to America from Europe and cross the Atlantic and you couldn't afford it, one fairly common tactic was to uh, enslave yourself for a defined period of time to pay your way, indentured servitude. But wherever Christianity has prevailed, slavery in the end has ceased. Christianity stopped slavery in the ancient world. Christianity stopped slavery in the British Empire. Slavery was belatedly and tragically eventually stopped in America. Uh, the, The founder of this church, Jonathan Blanchard, was actually an abolitionist. Why, given this teaching here? Here's why. Let me quote to you from the greatest living ethicist, a Christian, uh, named Oliver O'Donovan. He was the Regis Professor of Moral Philosophy at Oxford University for a long, long time before he went to Edinburgh University. This is what he says. The early church 
often criticized for failing to demand the abolition of slavery, dealt with the institution in the most direct way. It treated the proprietorial idea as fraudulent mystification. That is the idea that anyone can own anyone else. It taught its slave members to regard their masters, so-called, as brothers who depended on their help. And then he carries on, when a true description of the relation was in place, the legal construct could only lose its credibility, which it did. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, then the great 19th century preacher, in one of his sermons talks about communion. We just share communion here. And he says, I would much rather share communion with a murderer than a slaveholder. Uh, and after he said those kind of things, his books were burnt by slaveholders. William Cooper, the great hymn writer, has a wonderful uh, passage where he talks about the need to get rid of slavery based upon the lordship of Jesus principle. I would not have a slave to till my ground, to carry me, to fan me while I sleep. He wants the spread of the gospel to influence And so as we look at this passage, I think in many ways the key phrase, as I've mentioned earlier, is the beginning of verse 9 where he says, Masters, do the same to them because you have a Lord in heaven or a master in heaven. Without specifically calling for a social revolution that was impossible for a marginalized minority, that is the Christians, The Apostle Paul teaches a principle of equality before Jesus' lordship that undermined the institution of slavery. Um, When I teach on leadership, which I do sometimes with our staff or in other contexts, I I always lean on a great uh, book called uh, Spiritual Leadership by J. Oswald Sanders. And in that book, J. Oswald Sanders has, towards the beginning of it, a chapter that he calls The Master's master principle of leadership. And the master's master principle of leadership is, of course, service. Because Jesus is Lord, his lordship must shape our daily lives, and his lordship is a servant lordship. We serve one another. Now, of course, this passage here does apply to the employer-employee relationship and, uh, but you can make that application yourself in your own time. I wanted to use our time this morning to work through some of the confusions that there are around what the Bible says about slavery to provide some clarity to help us, I hope. So there's the principle. Jesus' lordship, not Caesar's lordship, then shapes our daily lives. And it is from his lordship that our freedom derives. And then that must make an application into the family and into the working life. Well, as we conclude, I'm reminded of a recent biopic of U2 that was done by David Letterman. I've always been a U2 fan, 
And uh, so I watched this biopic of you too. And in the, uh, the story, there's a moment when David Letterman asked Bono, the lead singer of U2, uh, about his artistic technique. And, he, and Bono says that the whole realm of art, artistic uh, creativity was opened up for him when he realized that he didn't have to resolve every contradiction. That the artistic moment was in allowing the contradiction to breathe. And I thought that was a brilliant uh, um, way of describing the, the artistic experience. That when you look at a piece of art or you listen to a piece of music, it's allowing the contradictions of life to breathe so that we can puzzle over them together in the artistic experience. And uh, I've always loved uh, you too, and I thought that was a brilliant description. But... While we must puzzle over the lordship of Jesus in this passage and the, the, the way it makes application, in the end, we're not called to be artistic with it in the sense of letting the contradiction live, that Jesus is Lord and somehow our lives are in contradiction to that. Instead, we're called to be engineers and engineer our lives so that gradually, by God's grace, the lordship of Jesus increasingly shapes our daily lives. Uh, some years ago, uh, a contemporary song put it like this. This is our God, the servant king. He calls us now to follow him, to bring our lives as a daily offering of worship to the servant king. And that essentially is what, Jesus, uh, what Paul was saying here about Jesus' lordship. The principle and then the application. Let's pray together. Our Father God, we do uh, thank you for the truth that Jesus is Lord. And we pray, Lord, that uh, you would help us to Grasp that principle and increasingly, by your power, engineer our lives so that the Lordship of Jesus in how we parent, in how we live at home, in our working uh, lives, is shaped by the servant king, by the Lordship of Jesus. And we pray for your help. In that regard, in Jesus' name, amen.